Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning, church. My name is Andrew Royer. My wife, Sarah, and my three teenage dudes are a part of this service normally sit over there. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, love that opportunity to meet you. Um, was a pastor for a number of years before we packed up our family and we moved overseas uh, because we have a passion for the gospel to go to where it's never been, uh, where there is no church, where there is no Christian, and believe it or not, in this world, still today, we have 2,500 people groups who have no gospel witness, who have no Bible in their language. There are no Christians there to tell them about Jesus Christ, and we want to do something about that. We live in Waukesha at Ethnos 360 Bible Institute where we're training young men and women in the scriptures and in character and in faith and uh, trusting that the Lord will send many of them out to plant churches in some of these places. I remember a number of years ago, my wife and I, taking off our shoes, uh, gathered there with a puddle of other shoes, and we climbed up these step-type ladder things into this house that was on stilts with a bamboo floor in Cambodia. And we sat down on the floor along with other believers um, that was the church. That was how they gathered, and we sat on the floor, crisscross, applesauce there on the floor, and uh, didn't understand a word of what was going on, but they were reading through the Bible, and they were brand new. The church had just been born, and they got to Corinthians, and they, they said, should we be doing this? And, and the missionary teaching them said, yeah, I think so. And they had their first communion service. I didn't call it that yet, but there was the bread and the cup, and, and the leaders their eyes are pouring down tears as they passed out the bread and the cup, and it was striking to me because they were, for the first time, looking at the bread and the cup and saying, this picture is that Jesus died for us. It was such a striking thought that those people had been there for generations and hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, building their houses on stilts there in Cambodia, and their greatest threat was that they didn't have any knowledge of Jesus. They didn't have any knowledge of the Word. They didn't have the Word in their language yet. That was their greatest threat. I remember speaking to a group of people under a great tree in sub-Saharan Africa. We are under a tree because it was the largest shaded spot in, in the whole region. We were teaching God's Word. And the threat that they faced was opposition if they became Christians. Even just a couple cities over, a couple towns over, villages over, people were put to the test and persecuted maybe even killed for being believers. And they were facing those threats and was once in a mountain tribe in Mexico with the Mixteco people, people of the clouds. They call them that because they live so high up in the mountains that the clouds are usually down below them. And complex language. They'd been there for a long time. Uh, predate the Aztecs. Like, that's a long time. They've been there a long time. And that night there were um, animal sacrifices that were being done to John the Baptist who was supposed to give them rain. Because somebody had come and taught the gospel but not stayed long enough to translate the scriptures into their language. And so over the years the stories got muddled and mixed into their own beliefs. And what threatened the existence of that church was just a lack of clarity in teaching or the scriptures I was once in an apartment high-rise in Europe, and we sat with the believers looking through scriptures and talking and, and sharing about eternity, and what threatened that church was the lifeless 
ideology of secular humanism which taught that we're just complex organisms and then we die and that's it. There's nothing else after that. You just live, you die, and that's it. There's nothing, there's no immaterial part. There's no soul, and they just had been fed that every day of their education, and it was hard to shake those doubts and skepticism. That threatened that church, and we've been in tons of little churches in America with uh, little wooden pews where you gather together and you sing, like turn to 397, number one and two, and everybody knows what they're doing. They don't even need to turn to 397. They just know it. Right? And a lot of dear people with great faith, and yet the tradition of that can sometimes threaten an authentic expression of faith. Well, this is the way we've always done it. We get locked into how we did it rather than what we're doing, and that tradition can threaten faith. See, the thing is, ever since the beginning, there have always been threats on the church threats that came from within, threats that come from the outside. And yet we know, Jesus said, the gospel will begin here in Jerusalem, then it's going to expand to Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And when you read the end of the book, you get to Revelation, that's what you'll see. He will have accomplished that plan. Like, it will happen. There will be people from every tribe and tongue and language gathered around the throne of God worshiping Him. So we know the end, right? Jesus, God is bringing all of space and time and history toward this one culmination. We know it's going to happen in every step of the way. There are threats that face the church. And today we're going to look at one in the church that was in Ephesus. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul had lived in Ephesus for a while. You can read about that in Acts 19. He had seen leaders grow up. He had then left. He lived there for over two years. He then left on his mission, but threats had crept back into Ephesus. So he sent his best intern, Tim, and he said, Tim, you need to go back to Ephesus. You need to stay there and take care of some of these threats. And that's what this letter is. So then he wrote this letter to Timothy to address these threats and give them some perspectives on what to do. So that's First and Second Timothy, the two letters that he wrote to Tim while he was there in that church. Follow along with me, chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Several of the threats they were facing, the first one was people who were teaching a wrong doctrine. That was a threat. Someone coming and teaching something that was different than what Christ had taught and passed down to them. Something that was different from what the apostles were writing down in the scriptures. Someone almost coming along and twisting and changing that. And we are really, that could have been written to us. There are people who want to teach wrong doctrine. I mean, open the internet, turn on the TV, and you'll see wrong doctrine being pumped out. Or they take one part that's partially true and then like twist it, try to make it fit sort of a modern narrative or our modern v- sensibilities or values. And abandon the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, and insert their own in there, right? We, are, we have that threat currently till now. The second one were people who focused on less important things. Now, to them, they had certain myths and genealogies that they were wanting to make these speculations on, and that was the end product. They just sort of speculate about the speculations that somebody else made. 
And this happens today, you guys. There's people just love controversy and debate. So rather than spending time teaching the Word of God and the Gospel, they have all these little pet philosophies and ideas that they're peddling. And they try to get everybody to listen to them. Like, I've got an MDF, so you need to listen to me. Or I, this or that. And they throw out these different speculations. There's debates and arguments and podcasts and video after video and books and conferences. And the problem is, is it distracts us from the real things that are spiritually nutritious. And we get lost in speculation that doesn't promote stewardship, is what it said. It doesn't promote God's plan or his mission. It doesn't promote righteousness in our life. We didn't grow in godliness. We just sat around debating for hundreds of years, and we miss out. This was a threat on the church in Ephesus. I would say, church, it is a threat now. Verse 7 describes people who um, desire to be teachers of the law, but they really have no understanding what they're talking about. And they make these confident assertions. This is the way it is. Really, they don't even understand the bigger picture or what's going on in Scripture. They have these wrong motives. They want to be seen. They want to be respected. So they're gathering together people who will listen to them. That was a threat. Another threat we'd have to jump to, 2 Timothy, and, and look at these other points that are mentioned, is a, a hyper-spirituality. These were people who were starting to lay down a list of do's and don'ts, like you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. Like we now call that legalism. But it's where you make yourself look good by writing down a bunch of things that you think you need to do, and then you can tell everybody how good you are. <laughs> so for them, it was like, don't get married. That is super spiritual. Look how spiritual I am because I didn't get married. Or don't eat certain types of foods. Look how spiritual I am because I don't do these sorts of things. And we, we have our own modern lists of that. We have our own things that we speculate. We don't, don't wear those types of clothing. Or we don't do, you know, eat these types of food or drink these types of things. And we have these little lists. And if you don't do these and you do do these, then, then you are super spiritual, right? And um, it only was just serving to self-promote. This sort of niche views or extreme application or sensational spiritual experiences. This is another one, guys, that we face. is where people are not satisfied with just hearing God's Word and learning from it have to have some sort of like extra mile sensational experience and you're sitting there thinking like well i thought my worship was pretty good but man that guy over there seems to like he has next level spirituality and it starts to make you question like well maybe maybe what i have isn't good enough right here's the next one i this one's worth reading this is from second timothy 3 5 and these this is a threat i'd call churchy fakers that's not quite Paul's words, but close enough. He says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power in their life. Meaning they're religious, like they have the form of godliness, but they've denied its power in their life. Like they're religious and totally lost at the same time. Do you believe that's possible? People come to church, they do the thing, right? They might raise their hand, they know some theology, clap their hands at the, at the end of songs somehow, um, have some sort of view of it, but they've denied their ethics are dicey, right? 
They have doctrine, but then when nobody's looking, their morality's just shot for when they're out of town. They've denied God's work in their heart even though they're churchy religious people. They're faking it. Um, they've allowed doubts, maybe, to creep into their heart. And now those doubts have kept them from following the Lord. I mean, how, why would you risk to share the gospel with a friend? Like, I could lose a friend if you don't totally convince that it's true. But they'll keep going. Can you recognize these threats, you guys? Can we as a church, can you recognize these? Or maybe, maybe you have been a threat in the church. Maybe you've caused dissension, divisions, evil suspicions, all of these things. Maybe you've been a part of that. And I love that, I and mean, I'd encourage you to go and read these books because what we're challenged to do with people who are threats to the church might be, might be different than what you think. We're not told to just push them out and don't listen to them. We're actually told to engage them and teach them with all patience. We're told to do so kindly. Like it's possible to completely confront wrong doctrine and not be angry and a jerk. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's actually possible. That's what we're called to do. Because the hope is that person will come to their senses and submit themselves to God's word. That is the hope, is that you would win them over. And if you're rude and a jerk and accostive to them, how are you going to win them over? They're just going to further push them away. Well, there's two ways of facing the threat that we're going to look at this morning. The first one's found in chapter 3, and that is um, having spiritual leaders for the church. Spiritual leaders for the church. There are several titles that are given in the scriptures. One of them is elders. One's overseers, and the third one is pastors. Now, in America, at this point in our history, we gravitate toward number three, and we typically call our spiritual leaders pastors, right? Um, that's the one that's actually used the least in Scripture. It only appears one time, I think, except for the work that they do appears several times where they are shepherding people. So elders are described as shepherding their congregation, it's really an imagery based off of the guy who's an actual shepherd who's taking care of sheep out there somewhere. He, like, makes sure they're fed. He makes sure they're in places that are peaceful and restful. He makes sure he fights off any threats that might be there. He has this relationship with them. And that's the image that we're using in Scripture to describe our spiritual leaders. So we might call them elders, we might call them overseers, we might call them pastors, we might just be talking about different aspects of the same role. But here we are in chapter 3. He says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be, did you catch this? He must be above reproach the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And there's actually about 20 of them total. We're going to just stop here with seven because we won't have time. Um, what must be true of every elder should be true of every Christian. So when we get to this list, don't think that pastors are some sort of special ops version of Christian, right? 
some elite secret team of Christian that we, the rest of us common folk, could never live up to that. Like, that's not the idea. The idea is that our pastors must be held to this standard, but we should grow in our character. We should be having these character qualities in our life. Now, check this out. Let's just walk through the first few of them. The first one, he is above reproach. That means your pastor can't be caught up in vice or addictions or scandal. Like, that just... He's got to be above reproach. No one, not only is he clean on Google, but even his secret life or his observable life is clean. The second one is he's the husband of one wife. Now, some of the places that we plant churches, we might move in and they might have been polygamists. They have multiple wives. And that will disqualify them from being an elder. But there are other ways it might disqualify us here. That would be, from the Greek, it means he is a literally a one-woman man. His attention and his dedication is focused on one woman. He is faithful to that one woman. That's a qualification that we would aspire to, faithfulness to your spouse. Number three, he's sober-minded or temperate is another translation. Every shepherd needs to flee sin and the things that are trivial it doesn't mean he has to be a stick in the mud and boring, right? He doesn't have to be a square. Um, but he has to be able to at least wade into the deeper waters of the soul. Like you don't want to go to your pastor with your deepest, darkest things in your soul and you lay it bare and he makes a joke out of it. Like that, that's not going to work. He's got to be able to engage with some level of seriousness and respect to the moment that way. The next one, he is self-controlled. He has control. He has bridled in. He has self-control over his, pulse, his impulses, over his passions, right? His eating, his drinking, his entertainment, his time management. You don't want a pastor who has no self-control. The fifth one there, he's respectable. I mean, he has everything in order. He's decent. You can't have a pastor whose life is a mess. Can't handle his personal finances. His relationships are all, all out of sort and he's going to try to lead a church. That's not going to work. He needs to be a model for us. He needs to be somebody that we would pattern after. Just like Paul said, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. We've got to have a pastor who's at least that, that level of consistency. You wouldn't want to be able to tell your kids, like, yeah, don't be like so-and-so. He's a jerk. He's a mess, whatever that might look like. One more, number six, hospitable. This is actually smushing two Greek words together. Right? The first word is philos, which means love. We know that word from like Philadelphia, the, the, the city of brotherly love. Right? So that's the love part, the philos part. The second part is xenos. Xenos is stranger or foreigner. And so the love of a stranger. That's what hospitality is. Now, sometimes we use that term, we mean there's snacks in the lobby. That's our hospitality center. Um, that's not, that's not exa- well, it might be part of it, right? It might, might be, because like you're trying to make people feel comfortable. Or sometimes we mean it as like, thank you for your hospitality, and you just meant it was a really great dinner party for all your friends. Uh, the picture here in the Bible is a little bit different. It's about receiving people who are on the outside. 
Obviously, if you have a dinner party and you're receiving people who are not part of your family, that's still hospitality. But the idea is that you want a pastor who's taking people who are on the outside and making them a part of the inside. And that's something we as a church, we want to we embrace that, right? We want somebody who walks into our church and they feel invited, they feel included and brought in. The last one, number, verse, um, number seven here, is he must um, be able or apt to teach. That's the statement. He must be apt to teach or able to teach. So, so this is some level of competence. Like he teaches God's Word and it becomes more clear rather than he teaches it and you're more confused after he just did his thing. That would be a problem. So there is a level of competence and competence is important. You do want a pastor who can teach God's Word. He can explain it and make it clear. However, notice this like number seven on the list. We went through all these character qualities before we got to a competence. Like he can sound good. Charismatic, everybody brought in and just talks so well. But if he has no character, it's not going to count because character counts more than competence. Character counts more than competence. Because then he's going to be an example to the church. And we as a congregation, we, we should work to make this easy for them. Well, I don't know if easy is the right word. Maybe make it a joy for them. <laughs> that might be a better word. Right? We want to make it a joy for our pastors to pastor us. Uh, what would that look like? I think you know, every pastor will just be thrilled if he looks out and he sees his congregation opening God's Word and reading it and engaged and thinking through and wanting to live a transformed life. I think every pastor would be, that would just be joy. Right? There's other ways the text goes through and, and shows us how we could be a, a joy. Like one of the ones, he says, be careful that you don't accuse falsely an elder like it's easy to rip apart a pastor like he preaches sunday morning sunday afternoon we go through all the things we didn't like about his message well it wasn't funny it wasn't anything new like i've said that one for all oh, it wasn't anything new you ever evaluate a sermon based on whether it was novel that's not good <laughs> whether it was funny as if they need to be entertainers like, let's be careful about the accusations that we would lay out against an elder. It's not that they're above questioning. Of course not. But they need to be legitimate. There need to be real reasons, not just an easy target. There's one more. And, and you, know, you know what? Your, our, our pastors did not tell me to say this. I'm saying this because it's in the book in chapter 5, or 17 through 19. We're actually instructed to take care of our elders financially. It says the ones who labor and preaching and teaching and who do a good job of that, they should be worthy of double honor is the statement. Like a double honorarium is the Greek term. It's a, a financial term. We don't want our pastors to be struggling financially and having to moonlight a second job and then not giving proper attention to teaching God's Word. And again, totally not told to say that. It's just there in the text. Well, let's turn our attention to 2 Timothy then. Um, the first way of us to deal with threats in the church is to have spiritual leaders who have character and who are models for us, right? The second thing is chapter 2. This is one of my favorite lines in the New Testament. <clears throat> Paul then tells Timothy, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Tim, you need to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. I'm going to nerd out on you just for a second, all right? It's a reflexive imperative is what it is in Greek. Like uh, it's an imperative in that it's a command. Did you see that? Be strengthened, Timothy. And, and that means that he could potentially not be. Like there's something for him to do or else he might miss it. But the second thing is the action happens to him. Be strengthened, not get strong, Timothy. Not you strengthen yourself, Timothy. It's be strengthened in Christ Jesus, in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's like this. This is a terrible illustration. I'm sorry, but like if I were to take a ball and I were to throw it and I said, be hit by this ball and I threw it at you and you dodged the ball, you obviously missed it, right? So, but the action is something that happens to you, right? You are, the action comes from an outside force. And this is what it means in this passage is the strength comes from God, but you are not are responsible to be strengthened by it. You're responsible. This isn't like uh, automatic updates, right? You install the software and it just does its thing. Like install faith and there, it's just good to go. Don't have to do anything to maintain that. God's actually saying, no, you need to be strengthened by grace. Let me picture this. Grace is God's unmerited favor, Right? In other words, God looked at you and he poured out his grace on you even though you didn't do anything to deserve it. It's not like he looked around and thought, oh man, that one right there, I really, really, really think that person's worthy. He actually looked at us and said, you're unworthy and I'm pouring out God's grace on you. That means that God looks at you and whether you were up or down, whether you're faith or unfaithful, God has this smile over your life. And think about how that will strengthen you for the day. If every day you got up and thought about how you're to be how you thought about God's grace in your life, you look at and see like God's favor on my life that I didn't deserve. Now I can pour out my favor on others whether they deserve it or not. You can love your neighbor, whether they're the worst neighbor in the world or not. Because God poured out his grace on you, you can now do that to others. You can now love people who are not very lovely. Because God didn't wait for you to clean up your life to love you. Right? Don't, don't we know that, church? Like, while we are still sinners, he died for us. Well, not by any works of righteousness that we've done because of his mercy or what about forgiveness god forgave you everything that you've ever done or thought and sometimes we're pretty stingy with our forgiveness towards others it's like yes i will take all of the forgiveness in the world but then i'll forgive other people's like conditions you gotta you gotta earn my forgiveness but i think as we stare at god's grace every day we're strengthened to live like this we can live loving and forgiving and generous lives because we're strengthened by God's grace in us. And I wonder, what makes you feel spiritual? What have you been strengthened by outside of that? Sometimes we feel strengthened by our own performance. Have you ever done this? I have. I look at my life and be like, well, I read my Bible. I haven't been too bad to anybody lately. At least not as bad as that guy. 
right? And I strengthen myself on my performance or by comparison maybe rather than staring at the grace of God. Anyways, look at this then, what he says. Timothy, everything you've heard from me, you're going to need to, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust it to faithful men who are going to entrust it or be able to teach others also. Then he says, verse 3, share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is his call. And you guys, we're not very good at suffering as a culture. We're, we're not. We love comfort. In fact, notice on commercials, notice this. How many products are just to make us a little bit more comfortable or live just a little bit longer, right? The diets and the foods and all of this so that we live just a little bit longer. I, I look at my kitchen and I just think like we, this is funny. I mean, think about it. We have a stove and it's just, you know, regular stove, but like gas comes in or electric comes in from wherever and we could just cook stuff on it, which is amazing if you ever lived in a jungle. You get to a stove and you're like, oh, this is awesome. Miraculous thing that I have in my kitchen. And I'm not like unusual. My kitchen isn't any different than yours. But on top of that stove up above, there's another box that heat things just a little bit faster, a microwave, right? In case I want to heat things just a little bit faster. And then we have this crock pot. I think we've got four of them for our wedding. That's so that we can cook things slower. If I want to cook things slower, I put it in the crock pot, go to work, come back. Or I don't. My, <laughs> that would be sad. My wife does that. Let me give credit where credit's due here. Because she's in over there. And, um, <clears throat> and, then, and then on top of that, like, this is where I'm really, really fancy is we have an Instapot because we want to make things fast instead of slow. I'm not going to go wait more than seven minutes for baked potatoes. We've got an Instapot, right? Come on now. And then sometimes I want to cook things outside. I've got a whole other oven for that called a grill. And I, that's not, I'm not describing a really luxurious, fancy house. This is kind of life in America. I have a minivan. It's a seven-passenger. It has 14 cup holders. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that hilarious? 10-year-old minivan, got 14 cup holders. Sometimes I drive that by myself, and I think I could have 14 beverages and have a place for every one of them. We don't like to suffer, guys. We don't like to suffer. And here Paul says to Timothy, come and suffer with me like a soldier. I got to Zoom a few weeks ago until it failed with a pastor in Ukraine as everything was unfolding. And he was saying, yeah, all our elders just left for the war. And all the guys in our youth group left, 16 and above. I don't know what our youth group is like, all the teen guys in our youth group. Can you imagine? Because it felt like that level of suffering was going to be worth it. You don't suffer unless you think something's worth it. I have a cousin that two weeks ago ran a marathon <clears throat> for no particular, I mean, she thought it was worth it to suffer that way. <laughs> no one was chasing her or anything. She just went out there and ran. It was like worth it to her to suffer that way. And Paul says, suffer with me like a good soldier because you think that this is worth it. Like a soldier doesn't get tangled up, this is verse 4, in civilian pursuits because his aim is to please the one that enlisted him. Right? Um, what entangles you in this physical life that would keep you from engaging in God's mission? Oh yeah, I would invite my neighbors over or I would get to know them and I would share the gospel, but I can't because of... Oh, I would get involved and serve at the church. 
I would do that, except for I can't because of, like, what are the things that keep you? I would be engaged in passing on my faith to my children and praying with them, but what are the things that have just gotten tangled up in our life? Do you have things that keep you from participating in God's mission? Verse 5 says, like an athlete plays by the rules. Can you imagine somebody going for a run around the track? You're just like, man, everybody's way out ahead of me. Maybe I'll just cut through the grass over here, cross the finish line, you know, wait for my trophy. Like, it's just not going to work because you're disqualified. You didn't run by the rules. And yet, Christian, God has laid out parameters for how we should live our lives. We can't just ignore purity and holiness and righteousness and ignore being right before God and and being engaged in His mission and think that there's reward when we get to the end. It's got to be a little bit of a surprise. He calls them after these other things like a farmer that works hard and he's patient. Calls them not to chase after riches that are just unstable and have no reward in the next life. Calls them to take care of his soul and take care of the souls of others. Now let's look at just one last passage in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Because Paul has gone to jail and been released and gone to prison, been released and he's been shipwrecked and he's been snake bitten and he's been stoned and he's been left for dead and now he's at the end of his life. And he's in jail and he knows he's not going to get out of it and he actually wasn't. He was killed. And he writes this last letter. This is the last thing that he wrote before he died. And he sends it to his closest disciple. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And we'd say, of course, it's the Apostle Paul. Look at all he did. Of course, there's going to be a reward for him. But look at this next line. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Guys, this is your calling to take your place church to fight this good fight to engage in the struggle the good struggle so god has given us spiritual leaders the threat is real to blend into our culture and if we're not watchful and vigilant over our thoughts or our souls, we'll become like the culture around us. And everywhere that the church springs up, there are these threats to it from the outside and from the inside. But the gospel is expanding. It is pushing beyond into every tribe and tongue and people group. And there's no threat that will stop the church. There's no foe. There's no spiritual darkness. There's no lifeless ideology that can stop the church from advancing. Even the gates of hell cannot stop as the church advances beyond them. So let's not get over ever God's grace. Let's find our strength there and build character. Build God's character into our lives. And on that note, I've gathered all of the different qualifications for leaders and I put them on the hub, um, or someone put them on the hub, I would encourage you to look at those things and say, Lord, what 
do I need to shape in my life and in my character? It's there. Pray that prayer. And I'm telling you, God wants to answer that prayer. So when you start praying prayers that God wants to answer and you already know He wants to answer them, you're in a good place. Lord, shave off and mold my character according to you how you want them to. And if you're daring, if you're bold enough, ask a friend, do you see these in my life, that small group? If you're married, ask your spouse. If you have a faithful wife who's honest and open with you, she'll tell you. Um, a good friend, who's someone who's spiritually discerning. And let's guard together the good deposit of our faith and let's tenaciously focus on what will matter for eternity, not just what ends at the end of this life. And I just ask you, like, where are you at? Are we there, church? Are we there? You guys are way too quiet. Like, our, come on now, can I have a little bit of like, can, is there an amen or something? All right, are we there? All the way? Full send? <laughs> For his kingdom? Let's pray. God, we want to live for things that are beyond just this life. Lord, we believe. We just confess that here together. Lord, we believe that you are building your kingdom and your church. And we want to be a part of it. Lord, we don't want to sit on the sidelines and watch it happen. We don't want to get enamored with things that are just less important would you please do this work of strengthening our church and our lives for your glory, for your renown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.